Heavenly Father, in a world that is so torn by war and conflict, we lift our eyes to you, the ruler of the world, and we thank you for the future that you have promised. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if I hadn't been a church minister, I'd like to have been a Spitfire pilot. Yes, I would. At least that's what I used to think. Uh, it's such a beautiful plane. If you've ever been to an air show and you see it doing a, a low-level fly past and you hear the, the throbbing beat of that beautiful Merlin Rolls-Royce engine, it's just an absolute work of art. And what an impressive pleasure and privilege it would have been to, fly, to have flown it. It's enough to make me think I was born 45 years too late. And in many senses I was. There is a romance, is there not, which surrounds the concept of being a fighter pilot which predates Top Gun. It does. Yet the reality of war is, of course, quite different. Uh, there's nothing romantic about war. War is sometimes necessary, and war is always horrific. Uh, I guess none of us would have experienced that firsthand, but you don't have to look very far to get a sense of its true horror. It may be uh, a Wilfred Owen poem from the First World War trenches. It may be a documentary about the Gallipoli landings. It may be the opening half hour of Saving Private Ryan. It may be a news clip of recent events in Syria. Come Anzac Day this year, our nation will again reflect on the tragic loss of life in war. There's nothing romantic about war. It is a horrific reality. In the film Miss Congeniality, Sandra Bullock plays an FBI agent who goes undercover as a participant in the Miss United States beauty pageant. At the MC of the beauty contest asks her the standard question, what is the most important thing our society needs? To which she replies that there would be harsher punishment for parole violators. That the crowd is silent and mute. And so then she adds, and world peace. And the crowd is ecstatic and cheers wildly. It used to be the stock line, did it not, by Miss Universe contestants. But that is the dream, isn't it? World peace. Imagine that, a world where there is no longer any war. But do you think that that will ever happen? Well, the Bible assures us that it will. In this final section of Psalm 46, we read this in verse 9. He that is God makes wars cease to the ends of the earth. Uh, this is one of uh, a number of Old Testament texts which look forward to a day when war will be no more. Another example, Isaiah chapter 2, verse 4. Uh, they will beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation will not take up sword against nation, nor will they train for war any more. No more military exercises. No more jobs in the armed forces because war will be a thing of the past then. Now in the past two sermons in Psalm 46, we've seen that for the Christian, God is our refuge and strength, an ever-present help in times of trouble. We've seen last week that the image of the, of the city of God has reminded us of God's presence his provision, and his protection for his people. It provides security amidst the uncertainties of life now, and it gives us hope 
as our gaze is directed to the heavenly city of God. We've been seeing, haven't we, the end point is the new creation. There God's people will perfectly enjoy God's presence, God's provision, and God's protection forever. And so now, in these closing four verses of the psalm, the camera lens is now pointed squarely at that end point, God's final judgment and the renewed world. And it brings a message of hope to our war-weary world today. What we're going to see this morning is three, th- three things in this psalm. Firstly, God's provision, God's promise of peace. Uh, secondly, God's call to his enemies. And thirdly, God's comfort to his people. So firstly, uh, God's promise of peace. Uh, we see this in verses 8 and 9. Uh, verse 9 begins with this wonderful assurance. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. What a prospect. There is a world at peace. He makes wars to cease. You see, this is not just an armistice in a war. And it's not just the cessation of hostilities in a particular conflict. Rather, this is a cessation of all wars. Did you notice? It is to the ends of the earth. And it is brought about by the Lord God himself. A world at peace. Uh, Verse 9 goes on. He breaks the bow and he shatters the spear and he burns the shield with fire. God himself will destroy all the weapons of war. There will be, if you like, a divine disarmament program. Is that a desirable uh, outcome? Of course it is. If any presidential candidate would guarantee bringing about world peace, he would be a dead cert for election. But although the outcome is something we'd all vote for, did you spot the process the Lord will use to bring this about? Verse 8. Come and see the works of the Lord. Here's the question. What are these works of the Lord that we are being invited to view? Is it the beauty of the creation, the stars, the skies, and the mountains? No, it isn't. In this case, the works of the Lord is not of creation, but of judgment. Verse 8 continues. The desolation he has brought on the earth. Desolation means that the earth has been devastated, laid waste by God himself. He makes war cease to the ends of the earth. How come all the wars have ceased? Because God, the divine warrior, has defeated all of his enemies. It's talking about the final conflict, a war to end all wars. Verse 9 continues. He breaks the bow. He shatters the spear. He burns the shields with fire. This isn't a picture of an amnesty in which everyone hands in their weapons of war to God to be destroyed. This is a picture rather of a victorious general wiping out an opposing army. Uh, if you were here last week, we saw uh, in 2 Chronicles 2, uh, chapter 20, uh, the original context of the writing of this psalm. Uh, this was the occasion when the land of Israel, of Judah, had been invaded by the foreign armies. And we saw there that Jerusalem was surrounded. But what do we see? The Lord 
himself inflicts a crushing arm defeat on the foreign army. And we read about it in uh, 2 Chronicles chapter 20. And therefore, when we come to Psalm 46 in verse 8, there's this invitation. It's an invitation for God's people to go out of the city and to witness what God has done, to see the carnage that God has brought about. The pile of enemy bodies, the smoldering remains of a defeated army, it's pretty gruesome. But that historical victory back then is seen as a foreshadowing of the Lord's final end-time defeat of all of his enemies. Uh, Plenty of people today long for world peace. But what is missing is this, a mechanism for bringing it about. If you just say, I want world peace, but you've got no way of bringing it about, it's nothing more than a hollow pipe dream. You end up sending like, uh, sounding like a Miss Universe contestant in the end. How can this world peace ever be achieved? Uh, can a change in the White House bring it about? Well, no new president would ever dare to claim that. If you look at the website of the Baha'i religion, it declares confidently this, that for the first time in history, and I quote, world peace is not only possible, but inevitable. Such optimism seems hopelessly naive in the absence of any process to realize it. Uh, Look at the Charter of the United Nations, uh, where it it affirms that that when it was founded, and I quote, it was founded to to save succeeding generations from the scourge of war, which twice in our lifetime has brought untold sorrow to mankind. But tragically, there have been more conflicts on our world since the founding of the UN than during any period of history. The Lord declares that he will make an end to war, and the Lord declares that he will himself bring about world peace. But it is in contrast to the UN, to the Baha'i religion, and to claims by Miss Universe. The Lord himself has a process that he will use to achieve it. And the process is this, judgment. The process is judgment. And it's the only process that can ever achieve world peace. Because peace will only come about after the divine warrior has established his rule and overthrown all of his enemies. If you've been to a carol service, you'll be familiar with uh, the readings from the Old Testament, which are often read there, of Isaiah chapter 9. And if you listen carefully when Isaiah chapter 9 is being read, you'll see what it's saying. It's the promise of world peace through a total rule. Isaiah 9, verse 5. Every warrior's boot used in battle and every garment rolled in blood will be destined for burning. For to us a child is born, and the government will be on his shoulders, and he will be called Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace. Of the increase of his government and peace, there will be no end. It's talking, of course, of the global reign of the Lord Jesus Christ. And that will guarantee peace. There will be peace then, but only because a rebel world where all evil and all opposition 
has been wonderfully cleansed. The outcome will be peace, but the process is judgment. So the outcome is something which everybody longs for, but the process is not necessarily a vote winner. And the uncomfortable truth for many people today is that the Lord is not seeking election. The Lord Jesus Christ is already installed as the King of the universe. And it only remains for him to return and to implement his glorious rule in every person and before every person. So the first thing we see then in this psalm is this, that God's promise of peace. But the question which remains is this, how should we respond to it? What are the implications for us today? Well, in the remaining two verses of the psalm, it tells us, and we move from God's promise of peace to then God's call to his enemies. Verse 10. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. Uh, verse 10 of Psalm 46 is probably a very familiar psalm to most Christians, but it's probably also the most widely misunderstood verse in the Bible. Be still and know that I am God. What do people often think about when they hear this psalm? Uh, they think it's uh, an invitation to be quiet as a Christian and to meditate on God's character and his presence. It's an invitation to a solitude and a silent meditation to have a deeper relationship with God. Is that what this verse is saying? Well, no. Did you notice who's, who's saying it? It's God who's addressing people. Uh, it comes in inverted commas, but who is he saying it to? It's interesting when you look more closely at the Hebrew word for uh, be still. What it means is basically stop. Stop what you are doing. Or you could say stop saying what you are saying. Uh, be still is actually a rebuke. Uh, you'll be familiar in Mark 4 where Jesus says to the wind and the waves, be still, he rebukes them, and then they are still. And so, who is God talking to? In the context, God is talking to his enemies, not to his people. And it's what God is saying to the nations, which in verse 6 were raging against his people. He's saying this, be still and know that I am God. They're not words of comfort to his people. They're words of rebuke and warning to God's enemies. Stop your rebellion, lay down your arms, submit to my authority. Be still and know that I am God. I will be exalted among the nations. I will be exalted in the earth. And there's no missing the emphasis, is there? I will be exalted, says the Lord. Exalted in the eyes of everybody. The Lord is God. He is king. He is the ruler. And one day, everybody will have to acknowledge this. Uh, Philippians 2 tells us that this will be wonderfully fulfilled in the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Uh, we sang about it earlier in the song, Highest Place. Uh, Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore, God exalted him 
to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. On the last day, even God's enemies will have to acknowledge, yep, Jesus is Lord. But notice what God is saying here. He's not saying, I hope one day I will be exalted amongst the nations. That is a certainty. The Lord will be exalted. There is no one bigger than God, no one more powerful. But he is saying, be ready for that day. When we hear that statement, the Lord will be exalted, how does it make you feel? When many people in our society hear that word and that statement, the Lord will be exalted, how does it make them feel? And many in our society would respond with indignation and with resentment. Many in our society would say, who does he think he is? And of course, it's a reflection of the state of their hearts in rebellion against God. Because by nature, humanity does not want to submit to God's rule. By nature, humanity wants to rule instead. And of course, that's the very essence of sin. And yet society forgets that as creator, God has the right to rule. And they forget that in God, there is this beautiful and perfect blend of power and goodness. And his rule, therefore, is not one we need to fear. It's a rule which we can submit to and which we can embrace. So how does God call us to respond now? He says, be still, be know that I am God, and submit to that rule now. Even now, God is saying, stop raging and rebelling against me. Lay down your arms. Embrace me as your king and as your Lord. And if people do that, then one day they will hear the command, be still again. But on that day, of course, it will be the day when they will know if they've done that, they've made the right decision. And so, of course, it is a call to all people of all time, be still. Submit to God now. Embrace Jesus as your Lord and your Savior, so you will need not fear that day then. So, having seen God's promise of peace, God's call to his enemies, finally, we see God's comfort for his people. Verse 11. The Lord Almighty is with us. The God of Jacob is our fortress. This is the repeated refrain in the psalm. It comes twice, and it also comes at the end of the middle section in verse 7. And when we look to the original context, we see further light on the nature of what this comfort is. Because we see it's not just that God is with his people, but that God also fights for his people, and God's purposes wonderfully prevail. 2 Chronicles 20, verse 15. The Lord says to King Jehoshaphat in Jerusalem. Listen, King Jehoshaphat, and all who live in Judah and Jerusalem. This is what the Lord says to you. Do not be afraid or discouraged because of this vast army, for the battle is not yours, but God's. The battle is not yours, but God's. 
And that is the wonderful truth. The Lord fights for his people. Ultimately, the battle is his, not ours. And the Lord warns his enemies, I will be exalted. And what acts as a warning to God's enemies also acts as a comfort for God's people. I will be exalted. My purposes will prevail. The battle is mine. Therefore, do not be afraid or be discouraged. Uh, we live in a world racked by war and by conflict. Uh, the evening news is often enough to make you cry in despair. The violence, the hatred, the cruelty. And we ask, do we not? What is this world coming to? And yet, of course, we see in this psalm that we know the answer. And the answer is not what the society would expect. The Christian knows that God is with his people and that he will bring victory in the end. And one day, Christ will establish this wonderful, global, universal world peace. And he will keep his people safe through the judgments that will bring about that wonderful peace. And it's a great comfort if you are facing persecution for your faith in war-torn countries of this world, such as Iraq and Assyria. Over the past few years, many thousands of Christians have fled their towns and cities in these countries. And it would seem, would it not, that the Islamic extremists are winning the day in their bid to purge the land of all Christians. And yet God is with his people and God's good purposes will prevail. And that day when perfect peace will be restored is coming. And it will be in all the earth. And not only is this truth a comfort to the, in the face of global conflicts, but also in personal conflicts. Because the global problem is a, an expression of the individual heart problem. For there to be world peace, there has to be a peace at every level and in every relationship. For in different ways we all suffer the maleffects of relational conflict. And yet, God's good purposes will prevail. The battle is his, and he will bring priests in the end. And that peace will be global, and it will be glorious. And it will be expressed at every level of life and creation. Now, I don't know if the lamb will literally sit down with the lamb. Uh, a lion and a lamb will literally sit down together and no longer eat each other. I don't know. That may be, well be a symbol of a level of peace in the creation which we don't currently see. What we do know is that that image points to a glorious peace which we will enjoy and the whole of the creation will enjoy together. And therefore, in the midst of strife now, it gives us hope. And it keeps our hearts trusting in Christ now and embracing his good rule over our lives now. And it also keeps us praying that prayer which Christians have prayed throughout the centuries. Come, Lord Jesus, come. Shall we pray? Heavenly Father, we know that that day is coming when the Lord Jesus will return and that glorious rule will be implemented finally and fully at every level of our world and our universe. And we thank you that that day is coming then when all who have bowed the knee to the Lord Jesus now will have hearts which respond with glad and ecstatic joy seeing the end point, that glorious reign of the Lord Jesus Christ 
and that beautiful peace which will pervade and saturate every level of our creation. And so indeed we do pray, come Lord Jesus, come. And we pray that we would each be ready for that day. And we pray that many more people in Cherrybrook and our surrounding society and world would bow the knee to the Lord Jesus now so that they, that they too would be ready for that glorious day. And we ask this all in the name of our Lord Jesus Christ. Amen.